Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 25th of January, Liam Thatcher taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of the sessions, where Liam looked at the doctrine of Scripture. Liam is one of the leaders at Christchurch London and a regular speaker and writer on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Okay, well let's look at uh, session two, as it were. Um, So in that first sort of half, we have thought about the idea of Scripture being... God's story and the aim of reading it originally is to do exegesis is to ask what is God's story about and and how do we understand it as applied as as it applied to its original readers but of course scripture is actually meant to be useful to us today Um, and even in the new testament people were were looking at things that were written to a a different group of people and applying them to themselves so we've got to ask in what sense does our story fit within God's story? In which sense are we a continuation of God's story? Um, and how do we therefore work out the technicalities of like, how does that apply to my life? Does that apply to my life? What, what, what do I do with that? Um, so I, I just want to begin by sort of asking a question. And I'll give you just like a minute to, um, you can reflect on it by yourself or turn to people around you, but you do have a, just a minute and then I'm going to ask you to feed back a little bit. Um, Who has heard the phrase, the authority of scripture? Who has used the phrase, the authority of scripture? What do you think you meant when you said that? Uh, That's that's my question. What do we mean by the phrase, the authority of scripture? Take one minute. You can think about it by yourself or talk to people around you. I'm going to get a few of you to feedback. What do we mean by the phrase, the authority of scripture? Go. Okay. Um, A few thoughts, suggestions. What, what do we typically mean when we talk about the authority of Scripture? Yep. Here's my word, right? Yeah, yeah, Okay. It's the centrality of one's lineage. Yeah. Okay, so there's something about this book that is, it's, it's sacrosanct. It's the yes. central yeah. thing that yeah. guides our life. Yeah, great. This is, what's the authority? The Word of God. The Word of God. Okay, great. Brilliant. Right. Um, God's final word to us, yeah. Yeah, and his will, okay, yeah. yeah. Something to be obeyed. What, what do we have to obey? Th- this word, this word, yeah, okay, great, yeah. It's from God and it's true and therefore it's something that we should kind of listen to. Okay, great, yeah. Jesus is the author. Oh, sorry, just hit, yeah. He is the author, yeah. Jesus is giving us the same authority that we can teach, we can yeah. correct in yeah. others, uh, yeah. healing. Great. He's giving us the same authority. Great. Yeah, you're all wrong. No, I'm kidding. You're, no, I'm, I'm joking. No. <laughs> not you, not you, madam. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I, um, no, but this is really interesting, okay? All, all of you are right, but actually you are more right together than you are apart, in the sense that um, often when we talk about the authority of Scripture, we are talking about this book, like we're saying, this, this is the authority of my life, right? This is the thing that I base my life on. This 
This governs my decisions, the things I do, the things I don't do, the way I think my life is meant to be run. This governs the way I think about my future. And, and we talk about the authority of this book. The only problem is Jesus didn't say that. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Yeah? He didn't say, all authority in heaven and earth is leather-bound and available from all good, good bookshops. Like, <laughs> all authority is given to him, which means there's actually none left for a paperback book, right? So the reason this book has authority is not because Jesus shares some of his authority, it's because he has the authority, as you said, he is the author, and it's his authority that comes through this book. So maybe this sounds like semantics, but what I'm saying is actually the reason this book is important is not because there's actually something special about this book, there's something special about him, and this is the primary book, more than anything else, that we use to access his authority. Does that make sense? So... In, in one sense, it's the same, but it's slightly different, I think. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, a guy called Mick Taylor, um, who, uh, uh, he's a great Bible teacher, he said someone came to him once and had just got a new Bible and was like, look, my, mine's got the words of Jesus in red. And he was like, that's really great. Mine has all the words of God in black. Like, <laughs> all of this book is, is, is God-inspired, right? Um, all of this book is God-inspired. But the reason it's powerful is because he inspired it, right? And we access his authority. In the same sense that if I were to try and grapple with something scientific, I might read a book about a leading, by a leading physicist or something like that. And, and I might say he is an authority on the subject. And when I read the book, what I'm actually doing is I'm getting his authority mediated to me through the book. And that's what's going on here. Yeah. Okay, so we are choosing to, 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 to bow to this ultimately because we're bowing to God. So when people say, why do you just govern your life according to an old book? I don't govern my life according to an old book. I govern my life according to the creator of the universe. He's given me this book so I know what he wants me to do. Okay, so that, and I think that is, that is sort of subtly different but important. So what, what is this book? What is this book? Again, I give you one minute to turn to one another and talk about it. Like, um, if you were to think of like... What kind of book is this? If you were to think of a metaphor for, for how the Bible is to, un, uh, to be understood um, uh, as God's gift to us, what sort of metaphor might you find a helpful one? One minute, go. Okay, some suggestions. Uh, if you were to sum up like a metaphor for, for what this book is, like um, what, what, what sort of things might you say? Or what sort of things have you heard other people say if you don't know for yourself? Sorry? A prison. A prison. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah. Great. Yeah. So this this takes a whole load of different lights, which are what perspectives on God or themes, and sort of distills it down to one. Yeah. And so as we look through this, we get to see a whole load of different. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. A love letter. A love letter. It, would anyone else have said that or have thought of that? That's a, that's a common thing. Like people say, this is God's love letter to us. And in some sense, that's absolutely right. Um, I've never been one for writing love letters, uh, but if I did write a love letter, I've written you know, cards and things to my wife, which have sort of nice sort of sentimental things. It would be a pretty weird love letter, though, if I'm like, I love you. You're so, this is all the things you mean to. By the way, here are some rules for clearing out mildew from your life. <laughs> and and uh, oh, I, I really love just this about you and your characters but if an ox were to gore someone then you would need to put them in a pit and like so so absolutely like at one level this is a love letter from god but it's a pretty strange love letter isn't it okay great hold that question so another metaphor 
Book of Instructions. Okay, so now we're getting onto something that crosses over the, with that. So some people will say this is a rule book. Yeah, and there are rules, right? Um, but it will be a strange kind of rule book. Um, I, uh, when I learned to drive, um, I had the sort of uh, highway code, sort of a book of rules, and it didn't just go, uh, do this, when you're turning left, do this. The sun is like a beautiful thing, and, it, it, and, uh, and you are so blessed and glorious. And wonderful. Like, it doesn't suddenly break into poetry. It would be a strange kind of rule book. So it's maybe some kind of crossover between the two. So one metaphor doesn't quite do it. Uh, yes, I think the rules are somehow an expression of God's love, um, uh, and, and I think that we need to read them through that lens. Uh, but I don't think as a metaphor, like any kind of metaphor really sort of does the trick for the whole thing, except maybe this one. Um, and maybe this isn't flawless either, but I find this a really helpful metaphor. Imagine this is a theatrical script for a play. Um, uh, I, my first degree was philosophy and drama, so I've plenty of experiences with scripts. And um, a script is a really interesting blend of things because a script for a play um, is a mixture of rules in some sense and uh, kind of creative expression. And it's not designed just to be read, it's designed to be acted. And in a strange sort of way, I think those elements uh, sort of come together to give an interest, interesting expression for how we're to read scripture. This is not my metaphor or idea. Uh, it's too good for, to be mine. Uh, Tom Wright unpacks this a bit. Kevin Van Hooser, various theologians, talk about the drama of doctrine and how we engage with scripture. And thinking of it like a script is really helpful because a script is a creative document that contains poetry and narrative. It's designed to be explored, expressed and acted out. And when I think of scripture as a script, what I'm saying is I think that this book gives me the basis for the best pop possible enaction of this thing called life uh, in God's world as he intended. And a script, of course, has moments where um, it's just dialogue and you have to interpret, like, how do I apply that? And sometimes it's like, move to stage right and you have to do that and you have to follow the rule. And if you don't do that, in some sense, the the, the play goes wrong. Like if your character has to pick up a gun at some point and you think, I'm not going to obey that rule. Then when you get to that bit in the story where you're meant to shoot someone, like the story's not going to work because you haven't obeyed the rule. That's probably a bad metaphor because murder's obviously a bad thing in God's script. But like my point is, it's a mixture of instructions that have to be followed to the letter and also just stuff that can get explored creatively in order to enact this, this thing. So Shakespeare said, um, all the world is a stage uh, and all the men and women merely players. They have their entrances and exits or exits and entrances, I think he said, actually. And, and, and it's kind of like that. All the world that God has created is a stage and all of us, we are players in this grand story that he has of creation, full redemption, restoration. We all have our part to play. We all have our entrances and our exits. And, and this is the book that helps us to know how do we make the most of our time on the stage, as it were, in a compelling and beautiful way. And the thing is that if you are grappling with a script, um, like... I, I have played big roles in plays and I, I've, I've written scripts that I've had produced and various things. And like, you may play a tiny character that only comes in in act three, but what you don't do as an actor, if you're a good actor at least, is just read the bit that's about you. What you do is you read the whole thing so that you understand that when you step onto the stage, everything that has followed before you, you understand what is in the author's mind, what they were trying to convey, um, so that you can act in accordance with it. And when you read a script, I might read a script by, I don't know, Tennessee Williams or someone like that. I don't have time, well, I don't have the opportunity to sit down with Tennessee Williams and go, what was in your mind there? Like, tell me about this. But what I can do by hand 
analysing the text is get a sense of, I think I I get the themes that matter to him. I get the way he uses uh, metaphors. And and, and out of that, I then have a way of sort of immersing myself into it, understanding the author, and therefore understanding how the author expects me to play. So that when I enact my role in it, in the basis of everything I've read, everything I've thought or understood about the author, I can then be the most compelling version of me that I'm meant to be. Does that make sense? Problem is, I'm not anywhere in this book because <laughs> it ends before I was born. I am not that old. Um, so, so, so how does it actually help us? Uh, well, Tom Wright says, actually, you have to imagine this as being Acts 1 to 4 of a five-act play, and we're in Act 5. And he says, suppose someone found um, an unfinished work by Shakespeare, which was the first four acts of a five-act play. Um, what you would do is you would... If you were a Shakespeare expert, you would be able to immerse yourself into it with an understanding of loads of stuff that you know about Shakespeare, how he tended to write, how his stories tended to go, and then all the evidence there of how the story had gone up to that point, the particular character traits, you'd immerse yourself into it. And on the basis of that, you would probably be able to improvise a fairly plausible ending to this story, which if you have come to enough proper understanding of what the author is like and really done your homework, Chances are your ending to the story, your act five, may be quite close to what the author would have intended if he'd actually sat down and written it. And Tom Wright says that actually that's kind of what the Christian life is like. We immerse ourselves into acts one, two, three and four, understand everything, understand as much as we can about the author so that we can improvise the best possible act five that will be compelling and will be um, coherent with God's storyline. Does that make sense as a metaphor? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we do know what's going to come about. We are yeah. in the last days, as Jesus said. Yeah. So we, we know what is going to come about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, so if you think about it, um, I mean, I kind of think that the creation, fall, redemption, restoration thing is. Um, I mean, no sort of framework is complete, but I almost want to sort of break it and go, creation, fall, redemption, we know what restoration looks like, but what we don't know is the gap between there and, and there. So, so Revelation tells us what's going to happen at the end, which is Jesus is going to come back and make all things new, but it doesn't fill in all the gaps in between uh, from sort of the end of the book of Acts to then. So what we have to do is we, we actually have a good clue. So it's almost like Shakespeare has given us as one, two, three, four in the final sentence. <laughs> um, and uh, here's the list of the people who are still dead and the ones that are still alive and made it through to the end. And what we've got to do is like, OK, how do I get from there to there? So, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but as a metaphor, I find that quite helpful. So I'm trying to improvise the best possible act I can, which means I have to ask questions about scripture, some of which is explicit. Do this, move to stage right, pick up this item, don't do these particular things. And some of it is just like it doesn't talk about areas of my life at all. There's no point at which it talks about how much I should use my iPhone or whatever it happens to be. Like I have to grapple with things that are implicit and, and figure out how to apply them in my life, which is the task of hermeneutics. So let me ask you a few questions. Uh, and this is the bottom of this uh, whatever page it is, uh, the, 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 how, our story, how does God's story shape our story page. Um, do you practice the following at your church? Um, hands up if the answer is yes to these. Do you at your church um, teach that murder is wrong? I'm worried that a few of you do not have your hands up. <laughs> and in fact, you, you are from CCM, right? Andy, what are you doing? <laughs> Right, I am teaching 
I am teaching at your church tomorrow, and I'm teaching that murder is wrong. Um, oh, actually, I literally am. I, I'm, yeah, okay, I'm preaching here tomorrow, and I've got a great story, which will... Uh, yeah, I forgot about that. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, hands up. At your church, do you offer animal sacrifices? No? No? CCM guys? No? <laughs> okay, good. You're right on this. <laughs> Sorry? You do have a lot of barbecues. You do have a lot of barbecues. <laughs> Great, yeah. All right, bonus question. Do you at your church eat pork? Yeah. 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 But, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, do some of you forbid the eating of pork in your church, or does your church? No, okay. But, but some would. Some Christians here would. Um, and, and we'll talk about that. Sure, yeah. So they, they go. So some Christians would say, and, and we'll justify that from Scripture as well, yeah. Um, do you in your church... Uh, practice or teach that you should practice circumcision no again some would though um do you in your church um forbid women to have elaborate hairstyles or wear jewelry and fine fine clothes no in africa yeah but do you have any form of that any comment on let's say for the moment women but i I would want to broaden it out does your teach does your church teach anything about what people should or shouldn't wear. Yes, but it may not be exactly the same as in scripture. We're actually... Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Do you in your church wash one another's feet? And one hand? Yeah, a couple. Yeah. Monday, Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you celebrate communion? Any of you not celebrate communion? All right, every Sunday. Any, who celebrates communion every Sunday in their church? Okay, not everyone. Interesting. But we don't in our church. We celebrate communion probably every uh, five weeks or something like that. Um, uh, who, that's in, in, in a Sunday setting, right? Not around a meal. How do you think it was done in scripture? Probably around a meal. Oh, so that's interesting. You're doing it wrong. No, I'm getting... But you you made a choice there. And and others of us have made different choices. Okay. Um, Do you encourage people to lift their hands in worship in your church? Yes. Yes. Let me me just rephrase that, actually. Do you allow people to raise their hands in worship? Okay. Do you encourage or instruct people to lift their hands in worship? All right. There's a mixture. Like, um, from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. But you've never had anyone from the front saying, this is actually one of the ways you worship. Do it. (laughs) No. Like the psalmist does. Raise your hands. Okay. It's interesting. Not passing judgment at this point. I'm just trying to highlight something. Do you greet one another with a holy kiss? (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes. What I loved here. Okay. Let me just stop for a second. Some... (laughs) Some of the guys were like, sometimes, and some of the women were like, oh, no. <laughs> okay, right. Now, we'll come to some of these particularities in a moment, and maybe we'll sort out that particular one. Um, but, but what's interesting here, and just what I want to highlight here, is that each of us have done something with Scripture. We have made some decisions, or our leaders above us have made some decisions that affected the culture of our church, which have gone beyond simply what did this mean to them, 
It's what does it mean to us? And, and some of us have applied them in very different ways. And actually, there was a lot of unity and a lot of agreement between us, which probably due to the fact that we are largely from fairly similar churches and church backgrounds, um, but we may not be. And uh, if we were to drill down into why, maybe some of you would have good reasons for why your church does or doesn't do some things. And maybe others of you are like, I don't know. I just thought that that's weird. Why would we do that? And others of you, it might seem natural to you. But my point is that all of us have done something, whether consciously or unconsciously, which goes beyond exegesis. And it goes to this second skill, which is called hermeneutics, which is the science of um, interpreting scripture for us today. Now, broadly speaking, next page, broadly speaking, all uh, grappling with scripture is about hermeneutics because hermeneutics is to do with the field of interpretation. Um, but more narrowly, hermeneutics is to do with dealing with um, the contemporary relevance of ancient texts. And that's what we've done when we've decided, am I going to wash someone's feet or kiss them as they come into the building or sacrifice an animal or whatever it happens to be or murder or not murder in your case. Um, and, and so what I want to do just in, well, we've got 10 minutes left of this session and in the final session as well, is then talk a little bit about hermeneutics. And uh, just so you know, basically I teach a day or two days on this thing, so we're not going to get that far in an hour and 10 minutes. Um, and again, this may feel quite technical, um, but what I'm going to sort of teach you in this session, and actually a lot of what I touched on in the last session, um, comes from, well, a mixture of places, but if you were to, if I were to recommend one book to you or two books to you, um, the two that I would recommend, and this is all in the final page of your notes actually, are um, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth um, by Fee and Stewart, which is a great book about how to do exegesis and then how to do hermeneutics, so how to figure out what the Bible originally meant and what it means to us. And uh, the great thing about that is it lays out some of the stuff that I have done today and then goes through each different section of scripture and shows you how to do it. Uh, that's a really good book. Um, and then there's another book called Grasping God's Word, which sort of does the same, but it's a bit more like, um, it is a bit more like an English class in so much as it does put out the things and say, now, underline the verbs, underline this, figure. And so if you want something that's going to actually be really practical to work through, that, that can be a really good book. And there are loads of recommendations on the back um, page about that. Uh, but this bit here, um, with the funny picture of the river and all that sort of stuff, um, this comes actually and has been adapted from Grasping God's Word by Duval and Hayes. Um, and essentially, they talk about the interpretive journey that we go on when we're grappling with scripture. And broadly, step one is everything we've just done in the last session. It's exegesis. It's grappling with what was God's word to them. It's doing careful study to discover the original intended meaning. It's about asking the right questions to do with context and content and so on. Steps two to four are then about crossing the river, as it were. So let me just talk through the the. the the, the various steps. So step one is about grasping the text in their world, and that's symbolised by the house on the left-hand side. What did it mean to the original audience? But then step two, you've got to measure the width of the river to cross. So what are the differences between their context over there and us over here? Um, and you've got to kind of work out, before you think, how do I apply this? You've got to say, well, like how big is the gap between their world and ours? Is it very similar? Is it small? Um, it's almost like if I would, if someone said, hey, do you think you could jump over a gap? I might say, yeah, sure. And I say, the gap is seven miles long. I'd be like, oh, no, no, of course I can't jump over that. I thought you meant a tiny gap. Like, you've got to know the size of the gap before you can judge whether you can jump over it, right? So that's the second step. Measure the gap, the, the width of the river to cross. Step three 
cross the principalizing bridge, <laughs> which is a bit ridiculous. But essentially it's saying, like, once you've figured out what's the gap between here and here, what's the thing that's going to get me across? Well, it's going to be a principle. And it's a principle that is true in both of those worlds. It's the thing that will help me cross the gap. So you've got to identify what that is, and I'll explain what that is in a moment, and then figure out how to cross over. There's an extra step for the Old Testament, because actually the Old Testament um, has to be read in the light of the New Testament. So if I'm reading an Old Testament passage, I can't just go, what's the gap between that and here, and how do I cross over? Because I've got to deal with Jesus. So if I'm reading an Old Testament passage, I probably need to build a bridge into the New Testament, and then say, how does Jesus change things, and therefore how do I go from Jesus into here. So it's almost like an extra step um, in the process. And then step four, we need to grasp the text in our world and ask, well, how should individual Christians and churches today apply the theological principles that were true over there? And this is the journey. And I'll kind of un unpack a little bit about that. And then we'll actually do some exercises to, to try this in a moment. Um, but if I can just sort of talk a second for exegesis and hermeneutics, you cannot start with hermeneutics. You can't. And yet most of us try. <laughs> so if you're sitting down reading your Bible, I imagine that very often what you're doing, maybe first thing in the morning is like, what's God's word to me today? And you're like, God, would you speak to me? And he may speak to you because he's gracious and he's kind and he's loving. And he may speak to you in a way that is consistent with how he has always spoken to people through those passages because he's gracious and kind and loving and clear and everything. But if you try and start with God speak to me today through this passage without asking what did this originally mean, you may actually do some damage to the text in the sense that you might be looking for things in it that it never meant. So a key principle of reading scripture is that a text cannot mean what it never meant. That is, it, it cannot mean to us the opposite of what God intended it to mean. That's not to say that the original hearers got everything that that text was communicating. And we were talking about this in a break. Like, an author may have wanted to communicate something and had communicated to it, but the Spirit's like, I've hidden some little Easter egg in there that people are only going to notice you know, years later once I've inspired more down the line. So the Holy Spirit's sneaky like that. And, uh, and he puts things into it that the original hearers wouldn't have spotted, but that we may hear later. But a key principle of reading scripture is that a text cannot mean to us what it never meant before. It cannot contradict the original meaning. It may go above it, it may apply it in a different way, uh, but the true meaning for us is to be found in and through the original meaning. Another principle I would suggest is that when we share um, sort of comparable uh, particular situations, essentially when we find ourselves in the same sort of position that the original hearers in, were in, we should assume that God's word to us is the same as it was to them. We shouldn't automatically assume that I can probably ignore that because God would say something differently to me today. I think my default assumption is unless there are differences between, because of culture and covenant and all sorts of things, which there often are, my default assumption is that God's word to them is God's word to me today, unless there's a very good reason for thinking it isn't. So I'm not reading scripture thinking, uh, oh, yeah, I can probably do away with that. God would say something different to me. I'm thinking this has given me access to the author. And God thought this was important for that period of time. Now, I've got some really important questions to grapple with and whether it is still the same for me today. But a submissive heart that genuinely wants to bow to God's word will be coming into it assuming that God wants me to live as he communicated in his word and then being willing to do this sort of difficult uh, groundwork to figure out where we need to apply it differently. Does that sort of make sense? So they, I'm not saying 
our default assumption is we do everything in this word. Like, if you spot an Amalekite today, go and stab him to death. Like, I'm not saying that. Um, but I am saying that there is something about a heart posture that actually you can tell people who are reading this book thinking, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way out of doing what God asked me to do. And that's not a good heart attitude. My heart attitude reading this book should be, and hopefully is, um, I'm trusting that this is God's word to me, as it has always been God's word to his people. And that's not to say I will apply it the same way, because God may have different things for me, but I'm going to do the intellectual and spiritual um, hard work to, to really want to apply God's authority to my life, not to try and dodge it at all costs. Does that sort of make sense? Okay, I think most helpful would be to stop. And um, let's, let's have a break. Let's uh, come back at 11.30, is that right? And then we'll... Um, I'll just tease that out a little bit further. We can take some questions and then we'll get into some particular texts. But uh, yeah, there's refreshments at the back. Is that right? Yep. Great. And uh, toilets, take break. And back at 11.30. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, but I hope it's been helpful so far. Um, and uh, in a second, we're actually going to get into some texts and do what we've been talking about all day, which is actually read the Bible, because it's kind of helpful on a school of theology to read the Bible at some point, isn't it? Um, uh, but let me just go through one more um, little bit, sort of unpacking this, this journey of hermeneutics a tiny bit further before we actually try it uh, on a few texts. So if you go to page number uh, four from the end... <laughs> Five from the end. I can't even count my own pages. Um, the next one, which says the interpretive journey summarised, and it's a big, boring-looking table. So as I've said, um, the first section, the first task, reading a scripture, is um, exegesis. What did God's word mean to them? The second phase is hermeneutics. And in one sense, hermeneutics is the most difficult bit. Um, and like I said, again, this is a summary in fact, this page right here is a summary of a whole day's teaching, so uh, we can't get into it in loads of depth. Um, but I want to just talk through steps two, three, and four briefly, and then we'll try it. And, and I should say, like, if this just makes you feel like, oh, gosh, reading the Bible is so hard, I don't want to do it. <coughs> That's not my point. <laughs> and I'm very sorry if I make that feel like that. I don't anticipate any of you going away and starting your quiet time tomorrow by opening Psalm 23 and going, right, step one. <laughs> like, if you do, I'm sorry if I have killed the life of, of, of reading the word. That's not the point. I don't do that. Okay, But this is actually giving you tools which become intuitive to us. And my suspicion is that if I were to come to your house and sit there and watch you do your quiet time, um, that would be terrifying and very weird. Uh, and I don't want you to come do that with me because I'm still in my pyjamas, like still a bit dozy at the beginning of the day. But, um, but I think you would do this stuff. I think you do. I just don't think you've necessarily had the language for it. And there may be some things that this will help to sharpen that you already intuitively do. So I am sure all of you do exegesis and hermeneutics to some degree. You may never have heard those words before. Uh, so I hope that this is intuitive and I hope it will become intuitive. This probably feels more technical than it will do on a day-to-day -day basis, if that makes sense to you. Uh, yeah, Carol. I think you probably do it without thinking. You do it mm. unconsciously, though, don't you? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and my point is that, that, my hope is that this should become more 
unconscious. And my expectation is that as we go into the exercises in a few minutes, you'll be like, oh, that's what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> taking us three hours to get there. Uh, or, or, or next month or in future months, you will basically do what I'm telling you today yeah. and the speakers will come and do what I'm telling you today. Yeah. And I guess you and some others, you've heard me speak on the Gospels yeah. uh, and, and that's what we've done. Like we've done this, haven't we? It's like, what do the text mean to them? How do we apply it today? How does it affect our life of worship etc 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 so let's just go through the journey of hermeneutics and i'll just throw out a few things that may help so as i said once you've grasped the text in their world step two is to measure the width of the river to cross so it's worth saying what are the differences between the world of uh, the original heroes here and my world today Uh, what's the gap and there may be a whole load of differences depending on what we're reading. So um, here are just a few ideas. Like differences in culture. We talked about this earlier. Culture. Um, the culture of a first century Jew is very different to the culture of a 21st century like Western us. <laughs> like, like our culture is very, very different. And, and of course, we are not the only culture in the world today. Like we come from different cultures shaped by a whole load of different things and people in different parts of the world will have very different cultures so it's worth being honest about that what's the difference and then you have to grapple with what are there things in the culture of the text there that are very different from mine and let's be specific about them because until you can identify them specifically you can't work out what you need to do the same or differently um language i mean obviously the language that the bible the bible was not written in english um yeah it wasn't and it was written in different languages and so we have translation to deal with and so it's worth asking like what what language was this bit written in and you don't have to know the details of that but um your punctuation that we have today was not there in the original greek like the commas were not inspired by god they were put in by people translating into english and so it's worth asking like how does the language difference um uh, cause me some things that i have to grapple with or are there idioms or just things that they used in their language there that are different to how you t- use today like the phrases metaphors that meant something there that don't mean something today and vice versa um i mean there are a whole load of things that are to do with the the setting of it like the time in which they lived which are very different to today um i mean literally we the, the, the list is pretty much endless things that are very different that you might not think about uh some examples um sorry diet, diet hugely different what people ate and what they had access to eating as well um or uh you know, technology obviously completely different um but the, the implications of technology for example um having lighting in your house is a relatively modern thing and so it's only relatively recently that we've been able to stay up longer than people used to people used to get up earlier as soon as the sun rose and go to bed earlier so actually when jesus is up all night like he's in the darkness and and that's a really unusual thing whereas maybe some of us are up all night just watching netflix into the night and that's a normal thing for us i mean jesus wasn't watching netflix he was praying but um and that's what you should be doing as well but like differences like that or like uh, (laughs) um and I should be doing as well. Uh, life expectancy. You know, what was the life expectancy in the first centuries? Jesus actually died an old man. You ever thought about that? Life expectancy was probably up to like mid, early, mid 30s. Jesus died an old man. We think this is a man cut off in his prime. No, it actually isn't. According to other people, how does that change the way you think about it? Just things that you wouldn't think of, um, because for us, life expectancy is way up here. Actually, like, we can just put our own cultural assumptions on. It's worth just unpacking those. And th- there are many other things we could think about in that category. Um, the situation they found themselves in, the covenant, um, the place in redemptive history. 
am I reading something that was written before the giving of the law um, or, uh, or while people were living in exile without access, access to the temple? And if so, and the temple was the place you got forgiveness, like how did they grapple with that? Or am I reading something that was in the new covenant? Is it when Jesus is talking about the new covenant, but it's, he hasn't yet died, in which case, is it something theory that hasn't yet been actualized? Or, or is it Paul where he's talking about the implications of what has happened and therefore I'm in the same part of the story? It's worth asking these kind of places, these kind of questions within creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or within the election narrative. Like where does this sit and therefore how, do I, how big is the gap between there and, and the world that I find myself in? Um, so the, the point of this is just to kind of almost gather evidence, as it were, and say, okay, is my situation very similar, in which case the rest of the journey may be quite easy, or is it very different, in which case buckle up, like this is going to be hard. And once you've figured out the measure of the, the, the width, the, the, sorry, the width of the river you have to cross, then you've got to figure out, well, how do I do it? And the way to do that is to think, well, what is the bridge that sort of goes across it? Uh, what is the principalizing bridge? What theological principle bridges the gap? So you've got to ask, what is a principle that would be true in their world and is true in our world? I'm not thinking about application at this point. I'm thinking about a principle. Simple one. John writes, God is love. God is still love today, right? There's a principle, which is that we are created by a God who is self-defined as love. That covers, like that bridges both contexts, right? So then there are things that I can do to walk the application across. And the application may look different here to how it meant look there, but the principle is the same in both worlds. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's maybe a simple one because it's about God and God is unchanging. So actually, <laughs> that, 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 that's an easy one. But there may be other principles like um, love your neighbour. Jesus didn't say love your neighbour all the while I'm here, but once you're, I'm gone, once I've ascended to heaven, like that's out of the window. <laughs> that, that principle seems actually to run all the way through scripture and it's probably true today so the principle may cross over even if the application of what it means to love your neighbor looks different from a samaritan doing it to to to, to, to me today or a jew doing it to a samaritan rather so what's the theological principle that bridges the gap what are the similarities between that world and our world and principles should be present in the passage um so not just plucking out random principles from thin air um uh, they should be things that are present in the passage. They should be timeless principles, not culturally bound. Uh, so not just relevant where those particular cultural elements are true, but relevant all the time. And they should be consistent with the rest of scripture. So I shouldn't look at a passage and go, what's the principle here? Uh, oh, actually, some, somewhere else in scripture it says that that's not true. Like, it should be something that's consistent with the whole of scripture. So in the basis of my understanding of that passage, like, what is it, what's the principle here? Um, that is true there is true in all of scripture and therefore I can trust is true here and once I've established that principle then I can start to move to well how does that principle get outworked in my situation that's different from there does that make sense yeah. this will probably make more sense when we ground it in some actual examples so we'll, we'll do that in a second but then the fourth step um, is to grasp the text in our world say how can I apply that principle in my world and actually it may look identical to what it meant look like over there or it may look completely different. Um, do not murder. There's a principle there. Life is sacred, okay? Because it, we are made in the image of our creator um, and a whole load of principles there. So um, I don't have to think, how do I apply do not murder in a way that is different 
from the... Like, I just don't murder people, okay? And if you go to Christchurch, Manchester, don't murder people! That may be the first time you've ever heard that, but, you know, glad we can finally clarify that. Like, the principle of, sort of, uh, this sacredness of life or whatever um, it, it crosses over, and actually the application here is the same as the application over here. But sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes the application over here is different from over here. And actually, if you go back a page, you see on the, the little diagram um, that why I had a house building on one side, there are multiple ones on the others, which recognises the fact that we may not all apply the principle in the same way, and that may be good, because we live in different cultures. We are different people. The way that you apply a particular principle may be the correct and godly way of applying that principle, and it may look different to how I might apply it. And we may live in the same, what well, we do, live in the same nation, or we may live in the same city, or, but we may be different ages or different contexts or whatever. And so there may be many godly, godly applications of a principle that look completely different uh, in our lives, and they're all right. And that's not a relativistic thing, that's just like, we're different. Um, and I hope that's a fairly non-controversial point. I mean, we're different, and the way that we work out what God wants us to do is we try and improvise this act five will look different. So what we should do is then, when we grasp the text in our world, we should try and find, we should ask, how did the principle address the original situation uh, and list kind of key elements, and then try and find parallel situations that contain all of those key elements um, in our world, and uh, try, try and make sure that it is as genuinely parallel as possible, um, not just sort of vaguely in the ballpark. And then ask, what would it look like to apply that principle in my situations? And, um, and try and think about how as well as what. So it's not just like, I must do this, but actually I must do this in this particular way in order to embody the principle. Um, someone, who was it? I can't remember. Someone said, uh, like we often asked the question, oh, I think it was it, uh, a preacher called John Mark Comer, who leads a church in Bridgetown, uh, <coughs> Portland. Um, and he, I can't remember quite how he phrases it, but it's, like we often ask the question, what would it look like for me to live like Jesus today? Um, actually, maybe a more interesting question is, if Jesus were me, how would he live today? Like, if you took Jesus into my context, how would he be Jesus today? Uh, who would Jesus be if he were me rather than how can I be like him? Because actually he lived in a very particular time and we have insights into how he lived at that particular time. But what if you took him across the principalizing bridge and put him into my body, how would he live? It'd be just like me, I'm sure. But like, like that's an interesting question to ask. Like how does the principle of who he is, like how does that play out in my life? And how might that look different for you or for you or for you? If Jesus were you, it would look different for how it looks if Jesus were me and, 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 and so on. So that's the task of hermeneutics. Does that kind of make sense? Well, let's look at uh, one example. And so if you turn over to the next page, um, let me talk through the parable of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. Um, and we won't spend long on this because I want to actually get us doing it ourselves. But if we were to ask what was God's word to them, that's the task of exegesis, right? <laughs> We would um, grapple with it. We'd think about the sentences. We'd think about the paragraphs. We'd think about the literary context. We'd think about why was Jesus asked about it? Um, why did Jesus tell the story? What did he give us the application? We do all the stuff that we talked about earlier. And we come to a summary, which was something like this. This is God's word to them. Jesus told his hearer that the law is summed up by loving God and loving your neighbour and showing mercy to them. And your neighbour includes Samaritans. That's... Jesus' word to the original person, right? So go and do it. <laughs> um, so then we might say, well, how wide is the river to cross? And we think about the difference in the situation um, 
And you and I live in a very different place in salvation history. This was before the death and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. Um, we are not there. So there are some differences that we have to grapple with. Um, they were still living under the law, under the old covenant. Um, there were all sorts of cultural things about Jews and Samaritans that are not the case today. I think of Samaritans, I think about the helpline. <laughs> and that's not what we think about. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Um, Jesus was talking about uh, two different cultural groups that had a war going on. Why? Well, partly it was a theological war, partly it was a practical war, partly it had moral implications. They had all sorts of... Uh, um, sort of, they, they met, they worshipped in different places. They had different rituals. There were um, expectations. Some of them probably good, and some of them actually probably racist. To be honest, like built in in, in uh, sort of judgment and um, fear of each other. That, that meant that they wouldn't interact. They wouldn't eat together. They wouldn't like people would literally journey around Samaria to try and get to a place that would have been way quicker if they'd gone straight through. Partly out of practical reasons, partly out of fear. And so there were a whole load of like superstition, different elements between Jews and, and Samaritans that simply don't exist today. So we've got some kind of some uh, I guess race or cultural divisions and elements there that may be different to today although I'm not saying that we are free from race and cultural division today it's just that it's on different grounds to how it was there so you sort of hold that there as you're, you're figuring out the river to cross then there were laws um, it was a different culture I don't go around um, expecting that as I'm riding my horse through the streets of London um, I don't ride a horse in the streets of London <laughs> like that's a difference right um, I don't expect that I will get attacked by bandits although Come to Christchurch Manchester here or in the evening t tomorrow and I will tell you a story um, that is not dissimilar, actually, uh, in a weird kind of way. Um, but th there are elements of like fear, but also I don't travel through a desert. I don't expect bandits who hide out in the cave. Like, that's just not what I'm doing. Like, inns and innkeepers and the, it, like, th there are cultural things that are very different today. So all I'm doing at this point is not figuring out how do I get around those. I'm just assessing like, how big is the, the gap and it's fairly big. So what principle bridges the gap? Well... It's got to be present in the text. And what is present in the text is the principle that we must love God and love your neighbour. And the principle that your neighbour includes those who you usually distance yourself from. In this case, the Samaritans. But I'm not bringing that into the principle. The principle is people you usually stay distant from for whatever reason. Um, so then how can I apply the principle? Well, I think it will be different for everyone. But it means that I need to, as I wrestle with the word of God and want to live under his authority, I need to say, well, are there people in my life that I am tempted to uh, stay away from or not help or avoid or demonize and sort of say like they are dirty or unclean or I need to stay apart from them? Are there people in my life that are like that for different reasons? Maybe it's different groups or social status or religion or ethnicity or whatever. And then I've got to face up to that and say, well, if that is the case, I'm not reflecting the heart of Jesus. So I need to change there. I need to love my neighbor. I need to recognise them, my neighbour. I need to love them. I need to care for them as Jesus did for me. And so, so on that journey, the people I identify may be very different to the people you identify because of the particularities of where you live or your culture or your own bias or things that have been done to you or not done around you, whatever it happens to be. But the principle is the same. The application is different. And the application for me may be different at different stages in my life as well. As I develop um, ungodly thoughts towards particular people that I encounter. Um, I, I currently live next door to a mosque. And so one of my questions is, how do I engage with people from a very different religion? Um, but I didn't have that 
question before. Like, theoretically, I would have said, of course, I love them, but I didn't live near them. <laughs> and so then they're different. And I'm not saying there's any animosity. I'm just saying that the mission field right now means that I apply the text in a different way according to who is around me at that particular point and my days of life and all that sort of thing. So do you see how that works? Great. And we do this, like, intellectually, but also just allowing the Holy Spirit to help us as well. So I might get to the point where I know what the principle is and what's the application. Well, I can list all the people around me or I can say, okay, God, who is there that I am not loving like this? Would you show me? And sometimes he will reveal people that I hadn't expected. And I'm like, I did not realise that was in my heart. Oh man, I'm sorry. I didn't realise I had that le level of suspicion or hatred or, or judgment or whatever. Like, I need to repent. This is how it works. So we work in partnership with the Holy Spirit as we do our exegesis and hermeneutics and application. Does that make sense? Great. So, your turn. What we're going to do is we're going to break down into um, some groups and we're going to do this journey um, for three different passages. And I'm going to divide the room into three, as you helpfully already are. And this group over here are the washing feet group, uh, by which I mean you're going to all come one at a time and wash my feet. Uh, no, no. Um, you, you're going to deal with John 13, 1 to 17. Um, and I don't suggest that you all get together as a group. I suggest you do it in your rows, but all of you, your rows, are going to deal with that particular passage. Um, this middle group here, on the next page, you have the holy kiss. And again, I'm not saying one by one, come up and give me a holy kiss. I'm saying that, like, that's, please don't. Um, I'm going to, can you deal with 2 Corinthians 3, uh, sorry, 13, 11 to 14. And this group over here, hairstyles, jewellery and fine clothes, 2 Peter 3, 1 to 6. Now, um, if we had time, we would go through all the stages of exegesis, think about the words, all that sort of stuff. We don't have time to do that. So quite quickly, I want you to read it, try and think, what was God's word to them? How big is the gap? What principle crosses it? How do I apply the principle? And I'm going to give you, I'll check in with you in 10 minutes, see how you're doing. Um, and if you need a bit longer, then we'll give you a bit longer, but sort of 10 to 15 minutes tops, and then we'll, uh, we'll process it together. All clear what you need to do? Yeah? Great. Okay. Oh, gosh, that was louder than I thought. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, so, let's figure out whether you should be kissing one another, washing one another's feet, or wearing jewellery. Um, so, uh, obviously, like we've got multiple groups having gone through the same process, so I'm not going to hear from everyone. Um, but uh, you guys, can some, let's see, where should we start? Uh, someone tell me, what, what was, we're talking about John 13 here, which is the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet um, and telling them to do the same for others. Uh, well, I've just summarised it for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, one of you do it better than I just did. Um, what was God's word to the original uh, hearers? Someone. Servant is not better than the master. Yeah. Sorry? Do as I have done for you. Okay, so let's... Um, th these are both true, uh, but actually they're straying towards the principles, aren't they, actually? So, so sorry, I should have been more clear. If you were to summarise John 13 in, in one sentence, it would be Jesus did or said what? Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and told them to do likewise. Okay, great. That's, that's the summary. Brilliant. And all those other elements come in. But um, 
Great. So how wide is the river's cross? What's the gap between their context and our context? Just throw out some things that are different between Jesus' original context and ours today. We all have feet. That's a similarity. Like, uh, differences. Okay, washing feet at the time was something for servants. It was a very lowly job. Uh, whose job is it now to wash feet? Ours. <laughs> <laughs> of our own feet, right? Okay, yeah. Okay, great. Um, any, any other, like, just differences? Cultural differences or... Sorry? We don't walk as much. <laughs> um, well, maybe, maybe. I mean, we have other ways of travelling. Is probably, yeah, yeah. Sorry, feet. Yeah, very dirty job. Yep. Yeah. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and then what's interesting there is is was washing feet always literally I think or had it taken on some kind of metaphorical usage even in the day as well of, of serving him why do people need their feet washed because they, they we have shoes and they didn't the sandals um sandy yeah okay so all sorts of different things yeah um where 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 were they when they were having their feet washed around a dinner table um like, if you're sitting like here, I mean, people would smell if you have dirty feet. But um, uh, uh, I, I, I can't. To be clear. <laughs> um, but, but actually, Jesus is talking to people as well who are, uh, who are having dinner. And the way that you would sit at dinner, you would lie, you would recline on your arm with your feet pointing towards someone's head. <laughs> so that's pretty gross. So you're going to want their feet to be clean if it's coming close to your face. So actually, there was an expectation. These people walk through dust in sandals. They've got to my house. They're going to lay with their feet close to my head. So as a host, I'm going to provide some way of washing their feet so that it's pleasant for everyone else. And, and of course, I'm not going to want to do that as the host, so I'll give that job to a lowly person. So the massive gaps between their world and our world today. Still, wash your feet. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But what's the principle that bridges the gap? What's the thing that's true for them and true for us today? Servant, yeah, servanthood is good. Oh, sorry, I don't know where that came from. Oh, was it you? So, yeah, great. So be a servant. So uh, we should have a, we should do with our attitude more than our application, right? There's a servant heartedness is, is, is good. And of course, we can find that rooted in other places in scripture as well. Um, serving one another. Yeah. And there are probably other things as well. So how do I apply the principle today, given that gap? How do I apply the principle of loving and serving one another, even doing the things that feel quite unpleasant, given that, Foot washing is not the thing that I need to do to demonstrate my love or care for someone today. What, what, what does the application look like over here? Be Christ-like. Be, be Christ-like, yeah. So th- then in practice, actually, I'll stick to you guys. Um, so so if, if it's you guys, since you've done the work, come on, you've got the answers. There. What does it look like today to wash the feet of one another if it doesn't literally mean washing the feet? Yeah. But if we're doing it for God's glory and for yeah. God's sake, then we're demonstrating God's love. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we find that in serving people that way, they yeah. stop to think and ask, well, "Why are you doing yeah, that?" Yeah. 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 So, so it may look completely different. The out, the outworking of it may be, I might, I might have a neighbour who literally is unable <coughs> to wash her own feet, and so the application may be is servanthood. 
me saying, I'm going to do that. And she may say, Pastor, that's beneath you. And I'm like, it's beneath Jesus. Like, that's not the point. I want to serve you as you. So there may be exactly that. But it may be saying, I'm just going to, I'm going to do this unseen thing. I'm going to spend time washing the toilets at church or whatever it happens to be. Or, or it could be something completely not gross. But, um, but it's just about your attitude and the way it sort of gets outworked in different ways. So there may be a zillion different applications and each of us may apply it differently on different days. The, the principle that goes across is serve and love. Yeah, great. Um, interestingly, when I said, do some of you practice washing your feet? Some of you said yes. And that's great. But actually, the reason you do that is probably not because Jesus told us to, therefore we must, because otherwise you would do it every day um, or every time you gather. And the church actually, uh, like in the book of Acts, you don't see that every time they gather together, they read the word, they worshipped and they washed each other's feet. Like, I think they understood that this was some, somehow broad as well. When we do it, perhaps on Monday, Thursday, it's a powerful way of enacting what Jesus did. And that can have all sorts of symbolic value. Um, and that's really helpful. But it's helpful because it reminds us of the principle, which should be outworked every day of our lives, not only Monday, Thursday. So, Great. OK, brilliant. Middle aisle, um, the holy kisses. Um, what, uh, someone, someone talk us through uh, 2 Corinthians 13. And of course, this is not the only passage on this. Um, what was God's word to them? So I'm, I'm saying, like, don't worry about principles right now. Uh, try and be specific in these verses who said what to whom that's it what's the exegesis what's the summary yeah go for it <coughs> by means of a holy kiss okay great um so i mean so I'm, I'm sort of being slightly picky um but what is so easy for us to do and i will probably do the same is we've sort of gone to principles it's really tempting isn't it and but in this first step the exegesis is literally what it said greet one another with a holy kiss and then what you've done which is right is think what's the principle behind the holy kiss which is kind of tied up in the passage uh they're sort of making making peace but the fact that you could summarize it without mentioning the word kiss tells me that. <laughs> so no 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 that's no, fine i'm i'm not i'm, I'm not picking it. sorry if you feel I, I didn't mean that but um but yeah so paul is telling people greet one another with a holy kiss and he does sort of unpack a little bit of why um and if you look at the rest of the the, the book you can pull out all sorts of principles so that's the exegesis so now let's think what's the gap between their world and our world and there are what are the elements that are different different So they live in a very different world with very different um, uh, interactions of groups um, and very different. So we still have all sorts of social differences, but they may be different differences to the interactions in those, those days. Yeah. Um, differences, other differences to do with holy kissing. Um, what are the differences between our context and theirs? Okay, so in their culture, um, even outside the church, actually, kissing was a normal thing, uh, whereas handshaking may be more of a normal thing here. Actually, even within this room, we probably have different ways of greeting particular people. But 
Would a random person have just kissed a random person on the street the first time they met? Well, who knows? <laughs> but, like, probably not, actually. There was an expectation that certain, certain types of people would greet one another with a kiss. Who was who most likely to... Well, you can't get this in the passage. So it's, sorry? Family. family. That's it. That's it. So, um, okay, so family would greet one another with a holy kiss. We tend not to do that today, though we may do in family. Uh, in church, I, we, like, there are all sorts of reasons why the gap is huge. Um, what's the principle that crosses over then? Yeah, absolutely. So that live in peace, encourage one another. Um, so there's something about the way we greet one another which must demonstrate peace and unity and encouraging. And, and I think I would say, actually, um, here's, here's a principle, like, greet one another like their family. So one part of the principle is treat your church like their family, not like their business acquaintances, yeah. right? So today... We cross over to this world. What I need to see is think there's a massive gap between their world and my world. Um, all sorts of reasons. Actually, all sorts of reasons why greeting one another with the Holy Kiss may be really bad to do today. Because it may be really inappropriate. I mean, particularly um, where there are so many scandals and just people misunderstanding things or, or just abusing uh, one another or boundaries in relationships yeah. just being eroded. Sometimes actually kissing may communicate the exact opposite. It may actually cause division or, um, or just unhelpful sort of attitudes. Whereas actually the point of the Holy Kiss is to create a sense of unity and family together. So, so we've got to think, well, how do I create through my actions towards one another a sense that these people in who, with whom I'm in church together are family rather than just acquaintances? So what minute might it be like to apply that principle today? How might you apply the holy kiss in your church tomorrow when you arrive? Yeah. 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 Great. So you need a visual affirmation. Let's ignore the kiss for a moment. When you get into church tomorrow, um, you want to give a visual affirmation to the people you're meeting that says I'm in unity with you I'm peaceful and I see you as family part of the family of God and that may not be a kiss what might it be like how do you greet one another in your church just a greeting a welcome a tap on the shoulder yeah uh, a hug with consent a hug with consent yes uh, yeah um yeah so I greet my family I don't greet my family with a kiss Although maybe I, maybe I kiss my mum on the cheek. I probably don't with my dad and my brother. Um, but I have, like, I might sort of, I hug them. Um, actually, I didn't growing up. Uh, well, no, I probably did, like, as a kid. But in my sort of teenage years, that's not how I greeted my dad particularly. But actually now, maybe it is because of the change in dynamic in our relationship. My brother, it may be a rugby tackle. I'm not saying, like, greet one another with a holy rugby tackle. But, but this, what, what it looks like may be different. Like, I, I, you know, I know Andy a little bit, so I might have greeted him more familiarly than someone here. But I am family with all of you. Um, actually, the holy kiss is probably not helpful, partly because you probably don't want that from me. And probably partly because actually kissing in our culture can, can suggest a level of intimacy, which is not actually necessarily familial. It's something else. So, so we've got to say, well, how do I communicate family in an appropriate and healthy way that says I, I don't see you as a business partner and I don't see you as this I see you as part of this family together and and it may be a handshake it may be a high five it may be a rugby tackle it may be a, a tap on the shoulder it may be a side hug you know whatever it happens to be but the point is that we're wanting to communicate something uh, 
in a way that recognises that this is your family. And interestingly, um, the phrase holy kiss, I, I don't think there's anything particular about the kiss that makes it holy. Rather, like, it's not like a particular method of kissing. It's not like <laughs> kissing, French kissing, holy kissing. It's like, um, what makes it holy is the intent behind it, right? Because if you do it to your family, it's not a holy kiss, it's a family kiss, but the reason it becomes holy is because when you bring that into the church, you say, I treat you as my family, and there's a holy purpose to it, if you see what I mean. Yeah? Yeah. Great. Brilliant. Go and do whatever is appropriate in your context tomorrow. Okay, um, and third group over here. Um, Sorry, we only have five minutes to do a controversial one, but, um, uh, and I'm sorry to everyone else, I I got the wrong reference. It should be 1 Peter 3, uh, not 2 Peter 3. Um, But you guys, like, what was God's word to the original audience here in 1 Peter 3? Yeah, 1 Peter. Okay, not, so do not wear fine clothes, fine clothes. Cultivate, cultivate a gentle spirit, you say. Yeah, great. Okay, how wide is the river to cross between uh, the first century context that Peter is writing to and today? What are some of the sort of differences between their world and ours? Women are very different now than they were Okay, so there's a difference between education of women and therefore status of women as well. Um, yep, yep. Sure. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what's interesting, of course, is that I've asked you to do the work of exegesis without giving you access to commentaries and all that sort of thing. So, if you read commentaries, they may tell you like particular things represented different people, uh, things. And some people might say, well, adorning yourselves in particular jewelry is a symbol that you're a woman of ill repute or whatever. But actually, others may say, no, actually, it's a, it's a status symbol of saying I am in, I'm an independent woman. I'm a, so it might not be. It might not have the, the sort of repeat connotations. It may be that I, I am a self-made woman and I am this sort of uh, independent figure who doesn't need a man. Or, all those sorts of things. But the point is, there is, there is a, there's an association and an understanding attached to particular jewellery, clothing, braided hair, etc., etc., which may not be the case today. So there's, there's a gap in what those things represent. Yeah. Um, Sure, yeah, we are not the early church. Um, so there's, so there's some, some kind of difference. So what's the principle that bridges the two contexts? Sorry? Uh, so the yes, something to do with submission, and of course in this passage as well, you've got the wives submit to husbands thing, which we're sort of not going near right now because we've got three minutes, but um, there's something about submission, isn't there? There's something about mutual respect here, which is a yeah. principle that goes across... Um, one of the principles sorry yeah so there's something about the way we live in including the physical things like what we wear communicates a message and it always has and it did in that context it does in our context and so make sure that what you're doing communicates the right message and make sure it comes from the right place a spirit of gentleness so so the principle may be that inner beauty or inner godliness or integrity or something is more important than external things so let your external things um 
manifest and communicate what's really going on in your heart. Uh, and don't leave it open to misapplication or misunderstanding or all those sorts of things. So how might we apply that today? Um, I've got a bucket over here. Any women with earrings can come and put them in at the end and unbraid your hair. And like, no, like, how do we apply it today? What, how might we apply it today? Yeah. Yeah. To self or status. Yeah. Okay. So think about the way that you dress and how that. So it's sort of to do with why, isn't it? Like, why are you dressing a particular way? What are you trying to communicate? And make sure that what you are externally wearing matches up to the internal reality and communicates that right message. So it may not be like. It may not be, so it could be exactly the same. In some cultures, jewellery does exactly say, um, I am, well, it may be that jewellery actually is totally fine, but really expensive jewellery, I wear this because I want everyone to know how much money I've got, in which case something of your internal reality is not helpful. It's not the jewellery is wrong, it's just the motives for that particular jewellery or the way it may be wrong. So in some cases, the application may be exactly the same as it was there, but that's more because the principle gets applied in a different way. But the point and there may be conversations in churches where, um, I think when I said earlier, like how many of you in your churches that you forbid people to wear particular things? Some of you were a bit, uh, and wanted to um, unpack that. And I've been in churches where actually, there's certainly been times where uh, men and women, people have had to say to them, actually, you know, what you're wearing there is probably not helpful for others. Have you thought about the way that that just makes other people think or and, and being able to have a conversation about that is an awkward conversation but it's a family conversation and and it's an important one and you can't just simply go wear this don't wear this like you've got to say well how's your inner reality where are you getting your sense of identity from where are you getting your sense of value from is it from the way that people see you or is it from the way god sees you and therefore how does that get manifest in the, the things that you wear and do yeah great did you find that easy or difficult those three tasks this challenging but did you find it helpful now, that's, that's what we do every time we read scripture, all right? We think, whether consciously or not, I doubt you go through the steps and you picture crossing a bridge, but like, all of us, when we're choosing in difficult situations to think, how do I, how I live today, God? How do I honour you today? I'm not going to just pluck the idea out of the sky. I'm going to say, oh, what does your word mean? But it's not as easy as saying, uh, great, go to the bit in the diary that says, hey, how much time should I spend on Twitter? Oh, that's page, whatever. Like, it, it's just not there. What I need to do is say, okay, what does your word say? Well, it says all these different principles. And I know you're the same. And context may be different, but you have this plan for my life. And I've got Acts 1 to 4, and I know how the story ends. But how am I going to improvise the most compelling version? Knowing that the way that God, through his spirit... Uh, challenges me to live may be different to others but as long as it's consistent with scripture um, actually that that may be exactly right and so we read scripture first of all trying to understand what God said and what he originally meant and then saying well what do you mean today um, and how does that allow me to shape my life and the way the reason we read scripture and the reason we do things like you're about to embark on this two-year course is not because we think this book has all the answers particularly but because god has made us in his image and we want to be connected with him and this is an act of worship and it's not an act of intellect it's not an act of like how much can i know and how can i have answers to all the difficult questions that people have about the bible sometimes it becomes like that but actually we must remind ourselves actually he is the one with all authority. And this book is his gift to me to help me know how to improvise the best possible life. That is, that is the me I'm meant to be. That is, so I can know what would Jesus be like if he walked around in my shoes. And I want to be like that. Partly because it honours God, partly because it brings me alive, and partly because it's a witness to the world around us. And so that's why we do this stuff.
And sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's fun, and, uh, and, and it is more fun, I think, when we do it together. I think we've probably each come to certain conclusions that you wouldn't have done without me pro probing you with questions and without others in your group saying, what about this, what about this? And I think we have probably fed one another, and that's the beauty of this. We do it together, we do it with one another, and we do it with the Spirit of God and in his presence. So you're going to have a great two years. You really are. And um, there's so much you're going to learn. And there'll be times where you'll be challenged. And there'll be times where you disagree with the speakers. And there'll be times when the speaker gets it wrong, uh, if it's a month that I'm not teaching. And, uh, like, <laughs> and that's okay, because we're all learning. We're all journeying on this. And there'll be stuff that I said today that maybe I'm, I'm wrong in, because we're all journeying in this. But the point is, we're learning to submit to the God who has all authority through the book that he's given. So I'd love just to pray as we close, if that's all right.